The desire of Titus Women is to invite women around the world to know Jesus as their Savior, Center, and Source. May God guide and encourage you through this message. Our scripture is found in the opening chapter of the Gospel according to Mark, beginning with the first verse of chapter 1 of the Gospel of Mark. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John did baptize in the wilderness and preach the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And there went out unto him all the land of Judea and they of Jerusalem and were all baptized of him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair and with a girdle of a skin about his loins and he did eat locusts and wild honey and preached, saying, There cometh one mightier than I after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost, and it shall come to pass in those days that Jesus, and it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. And straightway, coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And immediately the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness. I'd like to take as a text these words. There cometh one mightier than I after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. This past spring, I was invited to speak in the seminary chapel at Asbury. And it's a rather sobering experience to be responsible for speaking to three or four hundred boys who are going into the Christian ministry. So I began to pray rather earnestly about what I should speak about, and the thought that came to me was that I should address myself to the subject of discipleship what it really means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, because before any preacher can disciple other people, he needs to be discipled himself to the Lord Jesus. And so I thought, now, where shall I turn scripturally to get a basis for developing that theme? So the thought came to me that I should turn to one of the Gospels and read one of the Gospels through from beginning to end and carefully see what one of the evangelists had to say about discipleship. Uh, It probably was because I was lazy. I like to think it was because I was busy. I took the shortest of the gospel. And so I took the gospel of Mark, which you can read more quickly than any of the others. And I sat down and read it through at one sitting. Now, you know, when you read any book in the Bible at one sitting, you get a different picture from what you get when you read it a chapter at a time. And one of the reasons that many of us never see the great biblical truths is because we read snippets instead of large enough chunks. So I found myself getting, as I read the Gospel of Mark through from beginning to end, an overall picture that really never had come to me before. And I want to share this morning with you something of that overall picture that comes to me from the Gospel of Mark on what it really means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, as I read, one thing came clear to me. 
That is, that the Gospel of Mark is not like modern theological literature. If you and I were wanting a book on discipleship, we would want something that would discuss, that would define for us what discipleship is, as far as definition is concerned, and then how it is manifest in different ways, and we would want a logical, rational discussion of it with a few illustrations tossed in. Now, when you read, read the Gospel of Mark, I began to have the feeling that I had all the illustrations without any of the discussion. Because when you read the Gospel of Mark, that's about all the Gospel of Mark is. It is simply a tumbling succession of stories taken out of the life of Jesus. Now, I've lived with the Gospels and the Bible long enough that some things began to come to me afresh as I looked at that. And one of them was the difference between the way a Semite or a good Old Testament Jew would teach and the way the Apostle Paul would teach or the way one of us will teach in our day. You know, different cultures approach things differently. And there is a vast difference between the Old Testament and, say, the Apostle Paul in the way theological, biblical truths are faced. Let me illustrate for you. If you want to know what love is, if you were to ask the Apostle Paul, he probably would recite for you 1 Corinthians 13. Or if you were to ask me what Paul meant by love, that's exactly what I would do. Now, are you aware that there is nowhere in the Old Testament any develop of development of love like what you have in 1 Corinthians 13, in which you have its various characteristics described in an objective, rational, abstract way? But now, how does the Old Testament approach it? It's not that there's no teaching in the Old Testament on love. Do you remember that story in the Old Testament about a man that was told to marry a woman and he married her? And then children began to come into his home, but long before children came, he knew that there was a question about her fidelity to him. And it reached such a state that when one of his children was born, he, he named his child No Love. And when another one was born, he named his child Not Mine. Now, home is in rather serious straits when the child that's born in the home the father is not sure who his pair, his father is. But that was the circumstance in Hosea's home. You will remember one day his wife reached such a point of apostasy as far as marriage fidelity was concerned that she left him. And after she had left him, the years passed, and one day he was walking along the street with his son, and he passed the slave block where they were selling slaves. And they looked, and his son said, look at that pitiful woman. She was so pitiful that even a normal price could not be reached for her. And so somebody was bidding just a pittance, and Hosea took a second look and said, there's something familiar about her son. And he took a third look, and when he did, he said, wait. And then to his son's amazement, he watched his father begin to bid for that pitiful piece of human flesh because Hosea knew that that was the woman that for years had been his wife. And then for half the price of a slave, he bought that prostitute wife and took her home and tried to rehabilitate her. Now, I wouldn't want you to take away from me 1 Corinthians 13, but I wouldn't want you to take away from me the story of Hosea and Gomer either. Because here is an illustration in story form that I can grasp of what it really means to take 1 Corinthians 13 and 
take it out into ordinary life and translate it to where there is nobody beyond the pale of love as far as my responsibility is concerned, and it's a magnificent story. Or you read the way Paul developed the concept of our need for salvation. Romans. You will find that uh, in Romans 1, we are told that all men are living under, all men are under judgment. Why are all men under judgment? Because in chapter 2, all have sinned. Gentiles have sinned. And then he goes on and says, even Jews have sinned, you church members. Therefore, he says, concluding, all have sinned, church members, non-church members, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and there is none that is not in need of saving grace. Now, you don't find any rational development like that in the book of, in the Old Testament. You will find, rather, the story of a man like Abraham. And as you read it, God says, now that's the kind of man whom I can call my friend. And who is he? He's a man that turned away from living a life under his own direction to where he let me take it, and he went out into a land not knowing whither and became my man. Now, I'm glad for Romans 1, 2, and 3, but I'm also glad that you get a passage like that in Genesis so that I can get a picture story to illustrate for me the biblical truth that Paul is demonstrating in the first five chapters of the book of Romans. I was sitting in a group of PhDs at the Toronto Institute of Linguistics, and I was talking about this, and I watched while these men looked at each other and a smile began to slip over each one's face, and it was as if they had a secret that I wasn't in on, and they looked at each other, and finally one of them said, well, he said, you know, that's what we call the difference between linear logic and contextual logic. Now, he said, people whose ancestors come educationally from Greece think in linear logic. But he said, people who never knew about a syllogism think in contextual logic, and the story is the more natural form for them to learn from than the logical syllogism. Now, you know, uh, that's something that the scholars a generation ago missed because they used to say that Mark had no theology in it. Now, it was not because Mark had no theology in it, but it was because we just didn't understand how a good Jew taught theology. And if you will remember, that's the way Jesus taught. Somebody said to Jesus, now, what's the kingdom of heaven like? Well, he said, now, it's like a man who went into a far country. And then you get the story. You say to Jesus, now, what's the love of God like? And he said, well, it's like a man and he had two sons. And one of them wasn't happy and wanted all of his possessions. And that is the way Jesus taught and that's the way Mark teaches. Now, if that's so, then what is Mark teaching me about discipleship? Now, there are three things in the book of Mark that I think are clear and they have clarified something for me and illustrated it in the Gospels in a way that I have never seen before, and it's magnificently beautiful to me. So stick with me a few minutes, and let's see if it can come to you the way it has come to me. The book of Mark is divided, obviously, as you read it into two sections. The division comes in chapter 8, along about verse 27, 28, 29, when Peter looks at Jesus, and Jesus looks at Peter, and Jesus asks the question they've been waiting for him to ask, and he's been waiting three years for the chance to ask. And he says, whom do men say that I am? Now, finally, he says, who do you say that I am? 
Peter says, we know you. It's taken us three years. But now we know who you are. You're the Christ. And with that, the first half of the Gospel of Mark is over. Now, how'd they get to that point? Let me go back and recap for you for a few minutes. It is simply story. There were four of these fellows, at least, who were following John the Baptist, and they had become his disciples. And one day they're standing in his crowd, and somebody, one of the Jews from Jerusalem turns to John the Baptist and says, Are you the Christ? Look at this multitude of people that's following you. Are you the one for whom we look? And John says, Oh, no, I'm not the one for whom you look. There is one coming after me that's greater than I. I'm not worthy to take his shoes off or put his shoes on. When he comes, he'll do what I can't do for you. I can baptize you with water, symbolical of repentance. But when he comes, he will baptize you with the Holy Ghost. Now, he is the one whom you see. And Peter, James, and John and Andrew said, I wonder who he is. And then suddenly a young Galilean steps out of the crowd and turns to John and says, uh, I want to be baptized. And they overhear John say to him, I'm not the one to baptize you. You're the one who ought to baptize me. And then this young man from Galilee says, No, it is for righteousness' sake that you should baptize me. And so John baptizes him. And he then John the Baptist turns and says, This is the one whom you seek. Peter, James, and John, and Andrew says, well, if he's the one we should seek, then we should go follow him. So they say, Master, where are you staying? Why don't you go home with us? So Peter took him home with him. On the way, they stopped at Peter's synagogue in Capernaum. And when they stopped in the synagogue in Capernaum, Jesus stood up and preached. And when he preached, the multitude said, you know, we never heard a man preach like this. He preaches as if he knows what he's talking about. He preaches as if he has authority. He preaches, he doesn't quote other people. He just says it straight as if he's got a direct pipeline to the authority that's in God. There was a demoniac person in the crowd and Jesus spoke to him, rebuked the demon, delivered the man, and he was set free. And all of Capernaum was agog saying, what new doctrine is this? What kind of teaching is this? What kind of authority is this? Even the demons obey him. And Peter, James, and John, and Andrew said, you know, uh, John, our teacher said he had something. He's done what we haven't seen our teacher do. Peter said, Master, will you go home with me? And Jesus said, I'll be glad to. They went home and found that his mother-in-law had a fever, and a fever in those days was a very dangerous thing. There were no antibiotics. And the nervousness in the family over it was communicated to Jesus. And Jesus said, where is she? And they took him to Peter's mother-in-law, and he laid his hands on Peter's mother-in-law and spoke, and she was well. And Peter, James, and John, and Andrew looked at each other and said, did you see that? They walked out of the house and walked down the street, and a leper stopped them in the way, right in front of Jesus, and kneeling, looked up and said, Master, if you will, you can make me clean. And Peter, James, and John, and Andrew watched while Jesus reached out and laid his hand on an untouchable. And I am sure that the flesh of, of those disciples crawled. They were astounded. No man in his right mind would touch a leper 
Jesus laid his hand on the leper and said, You're clean, son. Go to the priest for your cleansing and let them know. And they watched while the flesh was restored in their sight, and they watched while a leper, an incurable, walked away whole. Jesus said, It's the Sabbath. Let's go back to the synagogue. And when they went in, they were teaching, or not to the synagogue, but to one of the homes. They went in, and he was teaching, and suddenly they began to take the tiles off the roof. And as they took the tiles off the roof, a man was lowered down in a pallet in front of them, and Jesus looked up at the man when he was about eye level and said, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And I'm sure those disciples looked at each other and said, Did you hear that? And they said, Did you hear that in hope and in, a, and, and in aspiration? And they heard an echo around the walls from the Pharisees that said, Did you hear that? And the Pharisees around the wall said, Who can forgive sins but God? And the disciples listened while Jesus turned and said, That's right, boys. And then he looked back at the man on the pallet and said, Now, whichever what you want it, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven, or arise, take up your bed and walk, you're physically well. Both are true. Both are true. You're all right. Go on your way. And people said, We never saw a man like this. They came into the synagogue on the Sabbath and there was a man there with a withered hand. And by now, Jerusalem knew all about this and they had special representatives down standing around watching. And they looked at this man with the withered hand and they knew Jesus had the power to heal him. They cleansed the, He had delivered the, the leper. And they said, do you suppose on the Sabbath day he'll heal a man? If he, if he does, then we've got something against him. Jesus said, are you more interested in people or in your own traditions and your laws and your own carnal pride and your own carnal position? And he said to the, to the man, put out your hand. And he spoke and the withered hand was restored. And he said, was man made for the Sabbath? The Sabbath for man? A greater than the Sabbath is here. Now, the stories come tumbling like this. They include that story of the storm at sea, and he's asleep in the back. And they come to him and said, Master, the waves are coming, and the boat is sinking, and we are all going to perish. Don't you care? And he stood up and looked at the wind and said, Quit. And he said to the waves, Lie down. And it was a great calm. And those disciples looked at each other and said, What kind of man is this? The stories come, whether it's a legion with a thousand devils in him or five thousand men with their wives and children that need food and there are only five loaves and two fish. They tumble. There was never a situation that he was not adequate to meet. There was not a human need that he did not meet. They watched the adequacy of this strange one who was in their midst and they said, what kind of man is this? As Mark tells the stories, they get to one place where they tumble into each other. You remember there was a man by the name of Jairus who came to him and said, Master, I have a daughter that's at the point of death, and if you'll go home with me, I believe you can save her. And he said, let's go. And as they're pressing on their way through the crowd to get to Jairus' house, suddenly Jesus stops and looks at his disciples and says, somebody touched me. And they said, somebody touched you. Scores of people touched you. What do you mean? This press, press around you? He said, yes, not that kind of touch. The person who touched me this time touched me in faith and something went from me to him. You know, there are a lot of people who touch Jesus without ever that kind of touch. There are different kinds of touches, you know. There is the touch that brings the power from him into you that changes you 
and makes you like unto him. And he said, where is the first? Suddenly he found at his knees a woman groveling, humbly saying, I'm the one that did it. I have an issue of blood that's been stripping my life away. It's been 12 years that I've had it. I've gone to every doctor that I could find. Not a doctor has been able to help me. I've spent all of my financial resources. I've become a pauper trying to get physical help. And instead of them helping me daily, I have gotten worse. I knew there was no hope for me. I thought if perhaps I could just touch you, you could heal me. And she said, it's done. He said, bless you, daughter. <laughs> Your faith has made you whole. Well, now, while she's rejoicing, Jairus looks at Jesus and says, Master, forget about it. There's no point in going. My servant just came and told me that she's dead. Jesus says, Jairus, <laughs> you forget about that. You come on with me. And he took Peter, James, and John, and they went into that bedroom. And he looked at that dead child. And affectionately, he said, Daughter, Talitha, rise. She arose. Then, do you remember that next word? He turned to the mother and said, Fix her something to eat. Do you suppose any woman ever prepared a meal for a child with the joy that that mother did? And these disciples look. These stories tumble. Jesus looks at his disciples and said, Whom do men say that I am? And they said, Well, your family thinks you've lost your mind because they came to get you to take you home. The people back there in Nazareth say you're a carpenter. They say they know you. They know your brothers and your sister. You're Mary's son. John the ba uh, Herod thinks you're John the Baptist come back to haunt him. And the temple thinks you've got a devil in you. The common people say you do everything well. He said, who do you say that I am? Peter said, we believe you're the one we're looking for. We believe you're the Christ. Now, do you know what the word Christ means? Now, I know it means anointed one, same as the Hebrew Mashiach, Messiah. But do you know really what it meant to Peter that day? It wasn't a theological concept only. You see, theology was never intended to be divorced from life. And theology is never real theology until it's brought into life and turning. You know what Peter was saying? Peter was saying, Master, Abraham was told you'd come. Moses told us you'd come. David was your prefiguring. Isaiah envisioned you and described you and what they never saw, we've got right here. We've got you are he. Now, do you know what a believer is? A believer is a person who's come to the place where he knows who Jesus is. And he knows that he's the one that men have been looking for all these years. Even the people that don't know they're looking for him. He's the one they're looking for. 
And the Christian is the one who's found out what he's looking for. Except it isn't a what, it's a who, and his name is Jesus. And Jesus is the one men are looking for, and that's our business. That's what Dr. Coleman's been trying to tell us. They're everywhere around us, and it's our responsibility to tell them what they're looking for. Him whom you ignorantly worship, we've come to declare unto you. And him whom you ignorantly seek, we've come to tell you his name. Who is he? He's the one who can meet every human need. They've seen the adequacy of Jesus. Now that's what it means to be a Christian, to believe in the adequacy of Jesus. All right. Now at that point, the book of Mark changes. Jesus now has his disciples. He's got 12 of them. And they say, we know you. It's interesting that the book of Mark indicates there were some other people who knew ahead of time who he was. It took uh, these disciples three years. You know, you can hear something with your ears without really knowing. Because, you see, these disciples were there that day when a voice came out of heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And a voice came out of a demoniac that said, we know you who you are, you're the Holy One of God, leave us alone. Heaven knew who he was, and hell knew who he was, but it took those disciples three years to find out. It took some of us longer than that. Have you found out yet? Have you found out yet? That's what a Christian is. A Christian is a person who's found out who he is. He's found out that heaven's right and hell's right about Jesus. Okay. Now here, immediately there's a change. From this point on, Jesus has his 12, and he gets his arms around them and begins doing the thing that Dr. Coleman's told us about, that discipleship bit in which he gives himself to them. There's an intimacy in the relationship between Jesus and the 12 from here on out that is not present up to, up to Mark 8, 27. But now, there's a, there, there's a second thing here. Now you get another set of stories come just one right after another. They're not theological statements. They're not like Romans 7 or Romans 6, but they're illustrative material. And you know what those stories are? From that moment when Peter looked at Jesus and said, we know you who you are, you're the Christ of God. There's a tumbling succession about the of stories about the disciples that are exactly like the tumbling succession of stories about Jesus except that in, instead of showing the adequacy of the disciples, from that point to the last paragraph, the last line, and the last period in the Gospel of Mark, there is a succession of stories that tell about the inadequacy of the twelve. Now let me illustrate. Peter says, you're the Christ. Jesus says, great. You know who I am now? I've got to go to Jerusalem, and when I get to Jerusalem... I'm going to be persecuted by the church that is there. And when I am, they're going to scourge me, do all sorts of evil things to me, take me outside of the city and crucify me. And Peter says, never, that cannot happen to the Christ. And Jesus says, Satan. Now, whom is he calling Satan? The one that a few moments before he said, Peter, you're blessed. Flesh and blood didn't reveal it to you. God's Spirit revealed to you who I am. A man one moment capable of divine revelation and the next moment Jesus is saying, you don't savor the things of the kingdom of God. You still have a mind of the flesh. 
get behind Satan. He takes them up on a mount of transfiguration, three of them, Peter, James, and John. When they get up there, there are two people with them. There's a cloud that moves in, it's sort of misty, and they can't see things too clearly, and they see these two strangers, and they take a second look, and Peter, James, and John freeze and say, no, this can't be. If I'd brought Abraham Lincoln in with me this morning, it would have been a different service, wouldn't it? Peter, James, and John froze. I'm sure they didn't say a word to each other because human language would have been horribly out of place because each knew. Unbelievably, there was Moses and Elijah. Now, you know, Mark says, and they talked with him. And I think what was happening was Jesus was giving confirmation to Peter, James, and John, heavenly confirmation, that Moses was saying, Master, Lord, is he going the way uh, I told him it was going to go? And they knew that a greater than Moses was there. Did you know that at every Passover the Jews leave a seat for Elijah? And Elijah said, Master, I tried to get them ready for you. And they knew that a greater than Elijah was there. It's no longer faith now, they know. They're coming down from the mountain. Jesus looks at them and says, Now, boys, don't tell anybody what you've seen until after I rise from the dead. Peter, James, and John look at each other and move off to one side. And one of them says, Do you hear what he said? And the other one says, Yeah, what does rising from the dead mean? They sound like a bunch of modern 20th century theologians. What does rising from the dead mean? The other one says, I don't know, but he said it was not to tell anybody what we'd seen until that happened. They get to the foot of the hill, and there's a big commotion. And in the middle of that commotion are the nine other disciples. And Jesus walks into it and says, what's the trouble? There's a man who comes up and says, this is the trouble. I know about your disciples. You sent them out recently all over the countryside healing, casting out devils. They had great power and had a fantastic ministry. And I know people who were healed under their ministry. And I have a son here, and I brought him to your disciples and thought that maybe what they had done for other men they could do for my son. But they couldn't help him. Master, can you help him? He looked around at his 11, his 12, and he said, How long do I have to put up with you, O generation lacking in faith, short of faith? Bring the child. Jesus spoke and he was healed. Did you ever lose what spiritual power you had? Did you ever know the anointing of God and then walk in the pulpit instead of your preaching being in the power and demonstration of the Spirit? It was like one lady said to me, it's like dried peas poured on a tin roof. Did you ever know the blessing of God and the power of God in your private quiet time and then you lost it until it was just form and ceremony and ritual and you gave up altogether? They'd known the power, but it was gone now. 
said, you've lost it. Then you will remember, he turns to them and says, we must go to Jerusalem, and when we get there, I'm going to be crucified. And it says, and they couldn't understand, they were amazed. They get to the end of the day, and when they get to the end of the day, Jesus turned and says, Boys, I heard you talking today, a very animated conversation. Everybody got involved in it pretty deeply. What were you talking about on the way? And Peter, who was always ready to answer, looked at John and said, John, you tell him. Don't make me. John said, Why make a goat out of me? You were in it too, Peter. Jesus says, You don't have to tell me. I know what you were talking about. You don't understand at all, do you? Arguing over who was going to be first. Who's going to be first in my kingdom? Don't you know that that's not the kind of kingdom I've got? He that's first is going to be last. It's going to be more like a child. You've got to become like a child if you're going to be a part of my kingdom. John comes to him and says, uh, Master, I'm so proud I did something today. I know you'll be so proud of me for pat me on the back. Jesus said, what'd you do? He said, I found a fellow casting out devils in your name and he's not one of us. And I forbade him and told him not to do it anymore. Jesus said, you don't understand, do you? He said, do you know what it means to put a stumbling block in the way of another man? And above all, to put a stumbling block in the way of a little one? It would be better for you to put a millstone around your neck and cast yourself in the midst of the sea than to put a stumbling block in the, in the way of a little one. And the next day, some parents brought their children to Jesus and said, Fellow, do you think you could get our children up to him? We'd just like for him to lay his blessed hands on our children. And they said, get out of the way. He doesn't have time for children. Did you get the order there? Jesus spent two days, at least two passages, talking about the importance of children. And then they bring children. He says, get them out of the way. He doesn't have time for those. Jesus turned. Or James and John come to him and say, Master, we have a special request. He says, what's that, boys? They say, well, we'd like one of us to have be Secretary of State and the other one to be Secretary of the Treasury. And he says, boys, you don't understand at all, do you? Now, remember, he's talking to his disciples. At no point does he tell them that they don't belong to him. He's talking to those that belong to him, and he says, you don't understand yet, do you? Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And they say, of course we can drink the cup that you're going to drink. It's like that song, Are Ye Able, Said the Master, If There Was Ever a False Piece of Theology Written, That's It. I notice it's even in this hymn book. I'm sure the man who put it in never really read it. Are ye able, said, yes, we are able. Our spirits are thine. Remold and make us like the divine. We're able. They said, we're able, boys. We're able, master. He said, you don't understand. All of you are going to forsake me. Peter turns two verses later and says, I'll never do it, Lord. And two verses later, 11 more chime in and say, we'll never do it. And Jesus says, my hour is now come and I've got to face it. 
He goes to pray and says, will you watch with me? And they go to sleep. And he comes back and they're sleeping while he's wrestling out the redemption of the world. A church asleep. Nineteen verses after they have said, we'll never forsake you, it says they all forsook him. And Peter three times denied him. And a young man in a linen cloak left his own clothes behind him to get away so he wouldn't be caught with Jesus. And they put him on a cross and there are a few women that stand in the distance. It's a Cyrenian that has to carry his cross. Where were Peter? Where were James? Where was, where was James? Where was John? Where was Andrew? Where was Bartholomew? They look around for somebody to carry his cross and they take a black man and put it on his back and make him carry it. And at the end of that Black Friday, Joseph of Arimathea goes to the government and says to the governor, it isn't right for that man's body to hang there. I don't know what they're going to do with him. Could I have his body? Wasn't his disciples that buried him? Do you know what Mark said? Mark said if it hadn't been for Mary Magdalene and Mary his mother, the disciples wouldn't have even known where the body of Jesus was buried. Mary Magdalene and Mary his mother watched at a distance and they saw Joseph take his body down and they followed Joseph until they saw where the tomb was. And on Easter Sunday morning, there are three women that come to the tomb. The angels say, go tell his disciples that he'll meet him in Galilee. Do you know that from Peter's confession until the last period of the book of Mark, there's not a good word said about the twelve? And I said, Lord, is that what you've got to say in Mark about disciples? That's the way most of us live. Five characteristics. Lacking, lacking in spiritual understanding what really is taking place. We don't understand what God's doing. Fleshly understanding. Lacking in faith. Oh, short of faith generation. Pray fearfully. Spiritually impotent. What power we knew we've lost somewhere. Fine more concerned about our place than we are about his work. Protecting our own reputations and names and faces and status than winning a world for Christ. Lacking in courage and commitment we back down in precious times. Now that's what Mark says his 12 were like. And I thought, is that the end of the story? Then I thought, no, that isn't the end of the story. If Mark didn't finish it, Luke did, and I'm glad. Because you know what happens in the opening chapters of the book of Acts? Something happened in that upper room, and when they came down, do you know that those five characteristics have been exactly reversed? Now let me illustrate. Lacking in understanding. Jesus said, can't you understand? The people stood all around and they said, what's taking place? Are these men drunk? Peter's got a seminary degree by now, so he stands up and says, you want to know what's taking place? This is what Joel told us about. Oh, he hadn't been to seminary. He had the baptism of the Holy Ghost. 
And the Holy Spirit had come and quickened his understanding and all those scriptures that had been fed into his mind through the years suddenly had come alive. The light had shined and he said, Now I know this is what the prophet was telling us about. He has come and he has spiritual understanding. George Mueller said the night that the Spirit of God filled him four years after his conversion, he said, I learned more about understanding Scripture. I learned more biblical truth in four hours than I had in four years of Christian living prior to that. There is nothing that will quicken the understanding and the intellect like the baptism of the Holy Ghost on a man. He'll see things he never saw before. He'll understand things he's never understood before. Clarity will come where there has been confusion and certainty will come where there has been doubt. Peter says, I can tell you what this is. Lacking in faith, they go out to challenge the kingdoms of the world in the name of Jesus. Before it's over with, they say, those fellows have turned the world upside down. They've come here too. And they said, Caesar, Rome, that's just a challenge. Spiritual impotence, loss of power. They didn't know what to do with that father's son when he was brought to them at the foot of the Mount of Transfiguration. But they're going in the temple. There's a man lame and he looks up and says, would you give me some money? And they say, we don't have any money. But we've got something far better than that in the name of Jesus Christ. Rise and walk and a lame man is made well. Spiritual power. Carnal. Now the question is not, how do we take care of Peter, James, and John? But the question is, Lord, which way do we go? And if it's to our death, whether by life or by death, we want to glorify your name. And perceiving their boldness, they took knowledge with them that they had been with Jesus, and they're ready to lay down their lives for him. Lack of courage, commitment, ought we to obey men or God? And the five negative characteristics of those disciples in the last eight chapters of, of Mark in the first five chapters of Acts are just turned over. Transformed is what did it. You know, I thought, well, now, isn't that interesting? Did Luke know something Mark didn't know? <laughs> Why didn't Mark say something about this, if that's, what, if that's the answer? And then suddenly it came to, you know what the opening paragraph of Mark is? It does Peter and James and John and Andrew, these disciples that are now John's disciples. And they're standing around John and somebody says, are you the one? John says, no, I'm not the one. You're looking for somebody bigger than me. I'm not worthy to loosen his shoes. I baptize you with water under repentance. But when he is come, he will baptize you with the Holy Ghost. And I say, yeah, mark you. Mark knew. Mark knew, and in his opening paragraph, he gave the promise. The story he didn't finish, Luke did. Because you know, it isn't Mark's word I need. It's the word of the living God. And it takes more than one man to tell that whole story. And God lets Luke finish the story Mark dramatically spells out. Now let me ask you something. Do you ever feel that you are like those disciples before Pentecost. You don't understand. The word doesn't come alive to you. You're short of faith and you live in fearfulness. 
you've known greater power than you know now, and you've lost something. There's still that carnal self-concern that interferes Jesus, and shall it ever be a mortal man ashamed of thee? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. But there it is. Do you ever feel that you're lacking in that courage and commitment that you need to go back home and stand and be what you God wants you to be? Well, don't get too discouraged. You've been in royally good company. You know, I believe that's the reason Mark uses some personal names. A lot of events are not named. The people are not named. But it's interesting that Mark says it was Peter that says, Thou art the Christ. And it was Peter that said, Never, Lord. And denied him three times. It was James and John that were on the Mount of Transfiguration. And it was James and John that said, Can we have the right hand and the left? You know why I think he named them? I think Mark was saying, I want you to understand, there wasn't any difference between the best of us and the worst. There wasn't a single exception. Every one of us was exactly alike and in the same need of the fullness of the Holy Ghost within. And Peter needed it just as much as old Bartholomew or Andrew or Thomas or any of doubting Thomas. And James and John. And you remember that reference to the boy who left his cloak behind? And they were about to arrest Jesus and all of his disciples forsook him. And Mark tells us about a young fellow that had a linen coat on, cloak on. And when they started to seize him, he just slipped out of his cloak and became the first Christian streaker, you know. You know what the scholars, most scholars say about that? They say that was Mark himself. And I think it's Mark's signature saying, you know, I wasn't any better than the rest. As carnal as all of them. Lacking in understanding, didn't see. Lacking in faith. Lacking in spiritual power. Lacking a clean, pure heart, undivided. I had a divided heart. Lacking in the commitment that's necessary to really stand. That's the way we all were. But we met in that upper room. When we were in that upper room, some, something happened to us, no, somebody came to us. And when he came, we found in him an adequacy. And you know, he's the same one that was the source of the adequacy in our Lord Jesus. I've come to believe there are three basic laws of discipleship, and you know what they are? The first is I've got to learn who he is. And if there is any question in my mind about his adequacy and as to whether he's the one that men are really seeking, I'm not a real believer and I'm not ready to be a witness to anybody else. But if I really believe that, every man that I look at, I'll say, I know who you mean. The second thing is, his adequacy, the second law of Christian discipleship is my inadequacy. And you know that's the reason I believe it takes most people a while before they can be filled with the Holy Spirit. You'll notice it took the, these disciples a number of months to get ready. Must have been at least six months between Caesarea Philippi and the cross. And
And then you add the 40 days, the 50 days, until Pentecost. Do you know why it takes time? C.T. Studd, when he came to this country back about 1970, 1918, and toured the universities of this country speaking for Christ, the minute he would lead a man to Christ, he'd look at that college student and say, now I want you to do something else. I want you to ask God to fill you with the Holy Spirit because you'll never make it if you aren't. Now he was right, theologically, psychologically, I don't know. I have a suspicion that a man has to stumble a bit convinced that he's not at it. But when you've fallen on your face flat enough, enough times, you'll say, Lord, I believe what's wrong. I'm your child. I know you've saved me. I love you. I want to be what you want me to be. Why can't I? And he'll say, that's just exactly it. You can't. So the second law of discipleship is your inadequacy and that you can't make it. And then you look up and say, Lord, is there an adequacy? to come into my heart and make me adequate for every step of the way in which the Savior leads me. And it's in Him. Now I want to know, have you learned those? I do not care what happens to you emotionally at Indian Springs unless you learn these lessons in your head. Because you'll go out and you'll try to walk in the flesh and when you do, you're going to fail there will be no flesh that will glory in his presence. You remember that text? I'm through. You remember that text in Zechariah? Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. I did a study once on the, three, three, the two Hebrew words that are used there for might and power, koach and chayel. And if you check their usage throughout the Old Testament, you will find that they're used to cover practically every human resource. One place or another, koach or kayel, is used for money. Do you ever think the problem is we just don't have enough money? It's easy for us at Asbury to think that. We need money. So we tend to say, now, nah, if we could just get some rich people to endow us, you know. One of the words is used, koach, kayel, they're used for money, material wealth. They're used for physical strength, the strength of the horse or the strength of Samson, physical strength, or the strength of the atomic bomb, or whatever material strength you want to name, physical strength. The words are used, one of them is used even to cover physical gifts, our, our personal gifts and abilities. Pharaoh says to Joseph, now you've got your brothers down here, they need to work to be happy, and if you've got any of them that are gifted in administration, I've got jobs for them, and one of these words is used. Did you ever wish you had a better trained or better, more gifted preacher at your place? If you just had the right preacher, you could make it? We don't have time to go into it, but those two words are used to cover practically every human resource in the Scripture. And he says it isn't by any of these. The adequacy is in him, by my spirit. I... Uh, went back and to finish that sermon at the seminary, 50th anniversary of the founding of Asbury Theological Seminary this past year, and I picked up a book. There was a young Methodist preacher in Danville, Kentucky. He's brilliant, oratorical, handsome, aggressive, personality of a of a man that if he'd been in the army, he'd have been a four or five-star general, and if he'd been in the Navy, he'd have been admiral of the fleet. 
kind of man that when he spoke, you jumped before you realized he told you to jump. That kind of man. But as he preached away, he said, you know, I began to find there was a difference between what I preached on Sunday morning and what I lived during the week. And he said, I could preach a better gospel than I could live. And that began to trouble his young soul. And he began to pray. He said there were days when he was ready to quit the ministry because of the contradiction between the two. He said, it wasn't that I didn't love Christ. But he said, I found an inadequacy in me on Tuesday that I was not necessary on, on Sunday. He said, one day I was walking down the street and bumped into the Presbyterian preacher. And he said, I told him, he said, could I just talk to you about me? And the Presbyterian preacher said, that's And that godly old Presbyterian preacher looked at him and said, son, God's getting ready to do for you what Wesley talked about when he talked about perfect love. Proud, vain, gifted, aggressive, young preacher became a humble, powerful, aggressive instrument in the hand of the Lord. That's what God wants to do for you. You like understanding? Faith, power, singleness of heart, purity. The answer isn't in you. You've tried to come to the end. And if you've come to the place where you know that you are not able, then you're ready. You're ready, and he's ready, and he's ready to drop the fullness of his Holy Spirit into your life and send you out adequate in Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit. Are you ready to go home? Are you ready to go home? There's the picture. Is there a word in that for you? I want us to turn in closing. The number 134. I want us to simply stand and sing. And if there's an inadequacy in you that Christ can fill through the filling of his spirit, I want you to come. His invitation is to you. I hope you'll hold steady if you can for just a few moments. The service will be over. But now is the decision time for somebody. And told me yesterday in 1918 his father came here as a Methodist preacher with one of his laymen. Heard this message. The invitation was given and he said, I knew I ought to go. But he said, how could I go in front of my layman? He said, I knew my layman would go back to my church and tell everybody in that community that we had a preacher now that wasn't even saved. Here he was going to the altar to camp meet. He said, a little boy said, well, he's not going to stay all week. Wait till he goes home and then you can go. And then God said, is that the way you're going to play it? He said, no, if this is a need, I've got to be honest. And he stepped out and said he came. God transformed his life. Four years later, he was in Vladivostok, Russia, as a missionary of the Methodist Church. Later in Harbin, Manchuria. He's the man that brought Basil Osipov out of Russia to the United States. 
One of his younger friends said to me yesterday about him, I didn't know it, he said, you know, there are at least eight members of the Georgia, of the annual conferences in Georgia that are the result of that man's ministry. The son of that man who here at Indian Spring when God spoke to his heart that I've got to be honest, if this is my need, I must receive. And he stepped out in front of his layman and came. Don't let anything hold you back from the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. It isn't worth it. You just break free and you'll step into freedom and into fullness of life and into Canaan and into effectiveness. That's what God wants. We're going to stand and sing and if you need to pray, if God's speaking to you, you come on while we sing. If you want to learn more about Titus Women, visit us online at tituswomen.org.